Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I am joined this week, as always, by Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. We said last week there's been a bit of a lull in the markets recently, uh, but what's the story this week, Simon? Well, it was actually a better week for the UK market and probably the best week that we've seen since April, May time, actually. So the uh, UK market in the form of the FTSE All Share ended up 1.6% for the week. Uh, and investment companies probably not dissimilar between one and a half and two percent. And we've also seen the sector average discount narrow in a little bit. And just to remind you, it had widened out at the start of the week, probably ended last week, certainly about four, four and a half percent. And that compares with 2.2 percent at the start of the year and an average of 3.4 percent. Though we've seen it creep in a little bit, it finished up uh, just inside four uh, percent. So certainly a decent week uh, in the market. And I think it's fair to say that recovery companies or those companies benefiting from the reopening trade have certainly done well. And the bet seems to be that the central banks won't be in a hurry to increase interest rates, this whole question about uh, how to respond to rising inflation. Though it's worth noting, as I think we've talked about in recent weeks, that trading volumes are thin at the moment. They're certainly lower than they have been. Uh, and there are still signs of that summer fatigue that we discussed. But a lot of focus, as always, on uh, inflation. The Bank of England have warned that inflation will exceed 3% uh, this year, but that might prove transitory. That's certainly their expectation. However, there are some counter voices out there that suggest that higher debts and a complacent view on uh, interest rates will lead to a new economic crisis. Yes, yeah, so I just had a quick look at some of the, uh, the trusts that have done well this week. It does seem to be you know, consistent with the story you've just told, is that a lot of these growth-oriented trusts uh, have done pretty well this week. That suggests that you know people's original concerns about uh, inflation and so on have eased off a little bit. People seem to be buying the, uh, the central bank story, at least for the moment, after a lot of anxiety earlier on. Is that uh, what you've been observing out there, Simon? No, I think that's right. I think that's right. Look, I think there's still a degree of nervousness out there. And, and certainly talking to clients and investment managers this week, there is a little bit of an element of, you know, what next? What can we expect to see? I think um, a lot of people are happy just to rein in some of their larger bets, to be perfectly honest, and just see how things progress over the summer. But I think people are, um, if the glass is half full, they're certainly on a more optimistic track at the moment. Yes, as we said, I think uh, we, we ended last week by saying the market seems to be looking for a new narrative. Doesn't really seem to have found one uh, yet, but maybe there will be one that emerges in due course. But it has been quiet, as you say. So let's move on and talk about uh, corporate activity in the investment trust sector. We're going to kick off with the latest news from the BH Macro, BH Global merger saga. These are two hedge funds managed by Brevin Howard. What have we heard about that this week? Yeah, so this is the latest development, as you put it, in this saga. So we know that the merger is going to happen by the end of August, so in a few months' time. But this week, we learnt how BH Macro had fared with regard to its tender offer. So as you may remember, they put a tender offer of up to 40% of its share capital on the table, and that followed a renegotiation of its investment management fees. The results are actually quite interesting. So there are two share classes for this particular fund, a sterling share class and a US dollar share class. 
Uh, and for the sterling share class, just short of 9% of the shares were tendered and just short of 6% of the US dollar shares were tendered. So what does that mean? Well, effectively, there's about £47 million in aggregate being returned to shareholders. But it also means that BH Macro is not seeing any substantial contraction in size. It still remains a pretty large vehicle. So I think when we talked about BH Macro and BH Global being merged together, and together they represent about a billion pounds worth of assets, there was this discussion maybe they could shrink down because of these tenders to something nearer to 600 billion. Well, that will not happen now. So even if BH Global sees quite a substantial uh, uptick, it's still going to be a decent sized fund. So I think this will represents a good outcome for Bremen Howard. Yes, it certainly does. It does seem as if the majority, the great majority of shareholders have basically decided to bite the bullet about the higher fees that Brevin Howard were demanding the board give them. And they uh, have not voted with their feet to um, express their disappointment. Uh, Do we know when we're going to hear about the situation at uh, BH Global? Well, as I mentioned, we know that the merger will be at the end of August so that we will know in advance of that date exactly how much will be rolled over because effectively BH Macro is the continuation vehicle. So somewhere between then and now, I think, is the answer. OK, well, it'd be interesting to see and also interesting to see how uh, how the shares perform. What are they uh, What have they been doing at the moment, uh, the two different uh, shares? Yeah, so as you may remember, they were quite highly rated at the start of this year. They were on a small premium and then with the subject of the investment management fees, they actually went to a small discount. They're now back around uh, NAV. So the stunning share class of BH Macro is on a very, very small discount and BH Global on a very, very small premium. But effectively, they're trading around NAV. Okay, so let's move on and talk about another trust, uh, which is Crystal Amber CRS. I think this is not a particularly well-known trust, but what's the news about this uh, particular vehicle? Well, we found out this week that uh, a company called Sabre, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, Sabre Capital Management, uh, which is the largest shareholder of Crystal Amber, they've written a letter to the fund saying that they will not vote in favour or they will vote against the fund's continuation at its EGM later this year. That's expected in November. Uh, Why is that important? Well, that continuation vote is a special resolution. So the fact that Sabre Capital Management owns more than 25% of the fund means that it cannot pass the continuation vote. So there was already a consultation process underway with shareholders, and that followed the last AGM, and the board are going to continue with that process. But now, specifically, in order to formulate proposals to reorganise, reconstruct, or possibly even wind up the fund following that vote. So you're right, this is, look, it's a very specialist vehicle for those people not familiar with it. It's effectively an activist approach to UK special situations. It's a very concentrated portfolio focused on the UK small cap. Uh, Richard Bernstein's managed this one since its launch in 2008. It's um, got quite an institutionally orientated shareholder registered, um, and it has had some quite high profile tussles with various companies in the UK marketplace. But it seems as if the the, the worm has turned a little here. And uh, what has its performance been like over time? Yeah, so over the last five years, it actually finds itself in negative territory. So the, the numbers I have here on an NAV total return basis, they're down about 5% or so over the last five years. And even over three years, they're down about 44%. So that's obviously some way behind the uh, the rest of the UK marketplace and particularly the kind of the small cap peer group that it finds itself in. So uh, performance has been an issue. And how big is this trust? Obviously, we don't know quite what we'll plan out here, but is this a, 
the kind of uh, asset base that uh, some other fund management companies may want to take on? Or do you think this will just uh, disappear? It's an interesting question. I mean, in terms of the assets, it's probably not far short of £110 million. So it's a reasonable size. But as I mentioned, it's got a very concentrated shareholder base, a lot of institutional investors on there. You know, they may be looking for some liquidity event. It's still trading out on a um, 20% discount. It's probably just tightened it a little bit in trade towards the end of the week. But uh, it will be interesting to see what uh, proposals the board come up with on this one. Yes, I guess if they do make a change, it will have to be a pretty attractive proposition, therefore, to make it fly. Okay, so let's talk on the more positive note about fundraising. We seem to have fundraising every week. Uh, It carries on. This time, we've heard from a couple of trusts. Let's start off with LXI REIT. That's uh, ticker LXI, which is a property investment trust. What are they uh, planning to do? So they announced this week that they intended to raise £75 million via a placing and that's a 56.4 million shares at a price of 133p. That placing price represents a small premium, about 2.3% premium to their estimated uh, NAV effectively. They produced a new NAV as at the 1st of June and about an 8% discount to their closing price just, just ahead of the announcement. So the placing is expected to close no later than the 30th of June. Uh, so that's Wednesday next week uh, with the new shares to be admitted to trading on the 5th of July. Uh, but there is a pipeline lined up for this one. They've, they've identified um, £125 million worth of uh, investment opportunities, which have an average net initial yield of about 5.5%. So that's obviously quite key. Again, we've talked before about the importance of deploying capital. LXI's portfolio, just to put that in context, is valued at £1.08 billion at the 1st of June. So it's already built up to quite a, a substantial size. But it's interesting the last time they raised money was back in March of this year, and they raised £125 million at that stage. That was at a placing price of 124 spot 5p. But again, they stated they were looking for £75 million and that was uh, oversubscribed, hence the £125 million. So it'd be interesting to see how this one goes. Right. So they've performed very well over time, unlike many of the other commercial property trusts, and uh, they have traded at a premium fairly consistently. So they're able to issue shares. And they've obviously done pretty well. Any idea how you think this will play? I mean, is it one you get a lot of inquiries about, uh, Simon? Well, I think, as, as you correctly observed, there is demand, strong demand for this one, as can be seen in the premium rating on what it, which it trades. In the last year or so, it's traded around NEV, but it has been up to a 19% premium, uh, albeit briefly. Uh, and at the moment, it's on a, a decent premium, probably 8 9%. So, you know, that in itself tells a story, and that compares with an average for the uh, UK commercial property peer group, probably in nearer to about 10, 12%. So quite a big difference in that regard. Okay, so move on. Let's talk about, uh, well, we're not going to talk about hypnosis this week. We're going to talk about Round Hill Music Royalty Fund, which is the uh, uh, the second trust that is now in this particular subsector of the investment trust universe. They obviously don't want to be left out of this uh, secondary issuance game. So what have they had to say this week? Well, they've announced a placing of C-shares, potential placing of C-shares, and that reflects the fact that they're at an advanced stage of negotiation on a pipeline um, that's been valued at 120 million uh, US dollars. And that pipeline is music publishing, master recordings and neighbouring rights, which span the 60s, the 70s and the 80s. 
So in other words, this is... Right up my street, you're going to say, yeah? <laughs> I was choosing my words very carefully here. But yes, uh, this is all kind of classic hits from yesteryear that I guess have proving uh, earning potential. But uh, they're pretty convinced that they can deploy the proceeds within a three-month period. Uh, the C-shares will be issued at a dollar per share, and they will convert into ordinary shares when 80% um, have been invested or if earlier 12 months after the issue. So there's minimum proceeds of $50 million uh, and they will begin trading on the specialist fund segment on the 20th of July. The placing actually closes on the 15th of July. But yeah, very interesting to see how this one goes. They raised 210 million sterling at their IPO in November last year. And then they did a top-up issue about a month or so later, 35 million back in December uh, in order to acquire their initial C portfolio. So um, this is the kind of first test since their, their big launch, really, how much demand there is out there for their shares. I do want to correct you on one thing, Simon, which is that, was it last week or a couple of weeks ago, you said that I was a fan of Barry Manilow. I took that in my stride at the time. I am, of course, uh, conscious of Barry Manilow, who he was, and I think that Roundhill may have missed out on his extraordinary catalogue of work. But um, familiarity is not necessarily the same as uh, saying that I have him on my uh, machines all the time. But uh, thank you anyway for casting that colony. I just take, take this opportunity to clear my name there. How do you think this one will go? Any, any clues? Obviously, uh, hypnosis has kept coming back for more despite its disappointing reception with its uh, last but one uh, fundraising exercise. Any clues about this? I mean, the, the premium suggests there is still some demand out there. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I've got it on a 6% premium or so at the moment. But I think what's really interesting here is that you've got both the music royalty funds out there at the same time raising money. Uh, I think we talked last week, or if not the week before, uh, about Hypnosis's plans and this idea that they were going to raise money and then not look to uh, issue any new shares for a period of a year or so. So this is the head-to-head -head tussle, um, and it'd be very interesting to see who comes out on top. Clearly, Hypnosis is the more established and larger fund in the UK marketplace. However, Roundhill have been doing this for longer, the actual investment team behind this fund have been doing this for, I think, best part of 10 years off the top of my head. Certainly, they have a longer track record. So this will be very, very interesting to see how these two uh, outfits fare. And also, of course, we've heard in the last few days that the uh, plan to demerge Universal Music from Vivendi, in which uh, any shareholders in Pershing Square have a kind of indirect interest now through the SPAC, is going to go ahead. So it is all hotting up for this particular sector, and uh, it will indeed be interesting to see how, uh, how far in demand gets satisfied over the next few weeks. Let's move on then to some results, and we're going to kick off with uh, Bankers Investment Trust, BNKR. This is another long-serving investment trust out there. They've had some interims, and uh, would you have been wise to bank on them in this period? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, let's find out. Interim results for the six months to the end of April, in which time their NAV total return was up 17.4%. Now, that compares with a rise of 21.5% for their benchmark. Uh, in share price terms, they did a little bit better than their NAV. They were up 17.7%. But it's obviously you know a relatively short period. They have underperformed in that period, but it's clearly about the long-term performance. And also, there is an income element to Bankers Investment Trust. They're an AIC dividend hero. And in fact, their net revenue uh, was up year on year from the comparable period. It came in at 0.97p. 
and they've declared dividends uh, or they've declared a second interim dividend as well. So uh, the intention for their full year is that they are looking to raise their um, dividend overall by half a percent. But always interesting, Alex Crook of Janice Henderson has been the longstanding manager of this one. Uh, made the point in the investment manager's report the underperformance was due to the shift from what could be described as lockdown beneficiaries to the reopening trade. So within the different uh, geographical sub-portfolios, the UK and the Pacific ex-Japan China were positive, uh, whereas the US, Europe and Japan uh, just lagged a little bit on the vaccine bounce. The Bankers Investment Trust has been going since 1888, so I think charging them on a six-month performance probably is a little unfair. Okay, so let's move on to another trust in the same sector, in the global sector, and this is the Scottish Investment Trust, SCIN, which has been in the news for other reasons. Uh, what have their results been like? Again, interim results, and again to the end of April. In that time, their NAV total return was up 14.4%, and that compared with a rise of 19.8% for their comparator index, the MSCI or country world. Uh, in share price terms, they did a little bit better. Share price was up 16.4%, and some shares were bought back in the period, 6.4 million shares at a cost of not too far of £46 million. The quarterly dividend was up year-on-year 1.8% to 5.8p. But the portfolio, um, although it benefited from energy investments, gold miners lagged. Some of the, a couple of the largest holdings of the portfolio are in fact gold miners. Um, But the manager, Sir Ali McKinnon, argued that uh, the portfolio is well positioned for a sustained change in market leadership, which may be underway. Uh, and the gearing stood at about 7% or so at the end of April. So the future of this trust is under review, as I recall. And obviously, these results are looking backwards. So um, I guess uh, Mr. McKinnon has to make his case to the board and to the shareholders for carrying on here. Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, you know, we, we caught up with him earlier in the week and he's also been quoted in the media as well. I mean, his line is that, it, you know, it's a positive thing and absolutely right that the board should hold a review. That's one of the responsibilities for independent boards to consider the overall strategy periodically. So that's his line. But he does provide an interesting insight into how a value investor, and that's effectively what he and his team, that that's the approach they've taken, but how they've approached the markets over the last year or so and you know, they were defensively positioned and, and he, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, as he put it, he said they should have tilted to um, more cyclical companies a little bit earlier on. They have put some more cyclical names into the portfolio earlier this year. So oil companies, uh, some consumer names, a great company, it sounds like Cheesecake Factory, a restaurant chain in the US, which just sounds calorific and some other names as well. But yes, clearly the strategic review is, is the elephant in the room on this one. And we'll find out what would assume in, in the months ahead, the result of that. Yes, it's fair to say that the Scottish Investment Trust is even older than Bankers Investment Trust. It's uh, started in 1887 rather than 1888. So two trusts with uh, very venerable histories. They both slightly underperformed their benchmark of around 20% over that six-month period. Let's move on and talk about BMO Global Smaller Companies, which is obviously... A global investment trust, but obviously investing in smaller companies. BGSC is the ticker, and they've had some annual results as opposed to interim results. And uh, what do they look like? Yep. So the annual results, again, to the end of April. In that time, they uh, produced NAV total return of 47.9%, and that compared with their benchmark, a return of 54.1%. 
Um, in share price terms, though, they were actually broadly in line with the benchmarks. They were up 54 spot o percent, and that was a reflection of the fact that discount narrowed in that time. Uh, so Peter Ewans has been the manager of this one since uh, July 2005, so a number of years now. And it gave, again, a good insight into how they've played the markets over the last year or so. So the relative performance in North America, for instance, was impacted by being underweight exposure to some of the recovery areas, such as industrials and consumer, uh, as well as to the higher risk areas, such as biotech. The UK portfolio suffered from being underweight some sectors that uh, did particularly well in the rally. That's a kind of familiar story that we're now hearing from a number of small cap managers. But uh, overall, uh, an interesting set of results, clearly. Things that did work for them, the European portfolio outperformed, and that reflected a little bit of rotation, as did their exposure to Japan as well. But um, although not necessarily a, a dividend play, they still are very proud of the fact that they have a record of 51 years of consecutive dividend increases. Uh, which is not to be sniffed at. And just taking these three, uh, you know, as a combined group, obviously they're slightly different in style and uh, where they invest. But in terms of discounts, how do these three trade? And how does that compare with, you know, with their experience over the last uh, 18 months or so? Yeah, so bankers probably trading on a small premium around NAV, and, and that's broadly in line with where it's been over the last 12 months, on average, probably about a 1% premium or so. And it has done very well. It's quite a quite a decent size vehicle, 1.5 billion um, and a yield just under 2%. So it does seem to have a, a strong retail following. Scottish Investment Trust, perhaps unsurprisingly, given what we've talked about in recent times, it is trading uh, on a discount at the moment. I mean, depending exactly how you calculate it, it's probably somewhere about 7 or 8% at the moment. Again, the yield is not to be sniffed at with Scottish Investment Trust. It's probably yielding just under 3%. Uh, and again, I think when we, we, we talked about the strategic review, we suggested that might be one of the board's considerations uh, in terms of which way to go forward. And then with BMO Global Smaller Companies, we've got that out on discount of about 9% or so, and that's just slightly wider than the average of 8% over the previous 12 months. And that yield 1.1%. So, you know, despite that 51 years consecutive increases, the yield is 1.1%. Uh, Okay, let's talk about a slightly different animal, something in the flexible investment sector, if you like, a, a kind of multi-asset uh, investment trust. This is Hansa Investment Company, H-A-N, and it also has, a, a, I think, a second class of shares as well. They've had some results out for the year. This is an unusual and interesting uh, animal, if I can call it an animal, in, in the investment trust zoo. What have their results been like? Well, they had their results out for the year to the 31st of March, 2021, in which time they generated an NAV total return of just short of 35%. And that compares with a rise of uh, just short of 39% for the MSCI or Country World Index. But if you look at the portfolio, and we'll probably just go into how this one's structured, because as you say, it's slightly different. They have a, a strategic holding in another listed company called Ocean Wilson Holdings. That was up uh, just short of 39%, whereas the portfolio excluding Ocean Wilson Holdings was up 34%. I think we could spend the rest of the podcast discussing how this particular company is structured. But effectively, Hansa Investment Company has two share classes, an A share and an ordinary share. There's a kind of controlling share class, which is and the majority of those shares are owned by William Simon and members of his family. That effectively gives them control over Hansa Investment Company, which in turn has control over Ocean Wilson Holdings, which in turn has control over uh, a company called Wilson Sons, 
which is a Brazilian company, effectively, uh, an operating company in Brazil, although it is listed in Bermuda. And there is talk of a proposed a corporate restructuring that would see Wilson Sons move from being a Bermudan-based parent company to being a Brazilian uh, domiciled entity. So it is a more complicated structure. I think probably the key points to note here is that effectively, Hansa Investment Company Limited is a is a uh, quasi family office. Uh, there's a gentleman called Alec Letchfield who's been uh, the CEO now for a number of years there, and the rest of the portfolio outside of the the strategic holding is very much what you would kind of expect in a, in a kind of family office type setup. So there's different pools, a kind of core and thematic pool, global equities, diversifying assets. And the idea is obviously to capture a lot of the um, upside from equity markets, but also to provide a degree of protection as well. So I think it's not surprising that because of this trust is effectively controlled by the family, William Solomon and his family, it's going to be trading at a discount almost certainly until or unless there is some uh, move to uh, either liquidate the thing, which presumably is very unlikely if it's a family office, or there's some kind of structural reason to change. So how, how does it trade and um, how does the discount move over time? You're absolutely corrected. Um, both the share classes, the ordinary share class and the A share class, and I should say the A are the non-voting shares effectively, but both are on big discounts. The ordinary share class is on about a 30% discount at the moment, the A share class on a 32% discount. And uh, yeah, I, I think you're right in your observations. I suspect that um, the market kind of keeps a close eye on the fate of Wilson Sons, so the Brazilian operating company. And I think there have been um, strategic reviews of that company in the past, which have been in the public domain. And what wonders that as and when something happens to that, that that might see a kind of shift in the, in the structure. And that might be the point where people will look at, again at this company. But as discussed, the underlying portfolio um, is doing a good job. Uh, and certainly under Alec Letchfield's stewardship, uh, it seems to be absolutely moving in the right direction. There has been a trend in some other family offices for the family office to try and attract uh, third-party investors. We talked about that in context of one or two other investment trusts. But uh, there's obviously a trade-off to be made between taking on more money and therefore diluting your family's interest in the trust and the desire to get more assets uh, under management. Uh, so, for example, if we, we talked about Troy Asset Management, for example, which was uh, essentially uh, Lord Weinstock's family money, which has expanded rapidly since then and now you know, the Weinstock family is a very small percentage of uh, the money that they manage. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be happening here, or at least uh, not that I'm aware of. Uh, and it would require some structural change for that to become a, a practical feasibility, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, the Hansa Investment Company is managed by the Hanseatic Asset Management Company in itself. So it is on a, on a kind of third party basis. Obviously, there's a kind of shared interest and uh, they're running money other than just this uh, investment trust. So they're running the uh, investment portfolio, for instance, of Wilson Sons and Ocean Wilson's, sorry, Ocean Wilson Holdings, let's get that right, uh, and some other additional money as well. So they are responsible for a wider pot of money than just Hansa Investment Company. But I think the whole idea of family offices using uh, investment companies as, as vehicles, and again, as you mentioned, we touched on this before, I think it's a very interesting one. And there is a natural alignment in general, clearly, between the family office and other minority shareholders who wish to participate if they believe that the investment approach is appropriate. Okay, so let's move on and talk about some UK trusts that have reported. We've got a mixture of annual and interim results here. Let's start off with BlackRock Income and Growth, BRIG, uh, had some half-year results. 
They did. They had half-year results out to the end of April, in which time they generated an NAV total return of uh, just over 27%. Um, share price not quite so good in that period, up 16%. And that compared with a rise of 28.5% for the FTSE all share. So a number of holdings uh, performed well for them in that six-month period. And it's worth noting, actually, when we're talking about these interim results to the end of April, this really is the vaccine bounce period because you are, you're picking up from effectively the beginning of November. So we did see quite a change in the, in the market uh, direction during that time. And BlackRock Income and Growth, they benefited from holdings in companies such as Taylor Wimpy, Grafton, Electro Components and Whitbread, whereas holdings such as Rent-A-Kill Initial, Rightmove, AstraZeneca, Hiscop, they underperformed. And one suspects that would have been a, a reverse of the situation in the previous six months, for instance. Um, but they managed to increase their revenue per share by 2.9%. And that increased to 3.15, and their interim dividend was maintained at 2.6p. So, in other words, that was covered. Uh, and in fact, they got revenue reserves equivalent to just over one times their annual dividend. So, that in itself is positive. I mean, the, the thing to note possibly with this one is that it is quite a small vehicle. So, I've got it on a market cap of about £42 million at the moment. So, it is small. It's probably off a lot of people's radars. The two managers, at BlackRock are very established managers. They, they run uh, an equivalent open-ended fund, uh, which is considerably larger. So this fund adopted a zero discount policy uh, a number of years ago, which has been more or less adhered to, though I note it's on a bit of a discount of about 3% at the moment. But it certainly hasn't resulted in them seeing any, any growth in terms of share issuance. So I guess there will come a point where the board has to think about whether or not this one has a significant future or not. Let's talk about Chelverton UK Dividend Trust. This is, again, another small trust, but it has uh, certainly had uh, a pretty lively time over the years, I think it's fair to say. SDV is the uh, ticker, and they've had some annual results. It's quite a concentrated portfolio they run, I think. Yeah, so annual results for the year to the end of April, uh, in which time they had an NAV increase of just short of 82% that compared with a rise of about 43% for the MSCI small cap index. Though it's worth noting that this is quite a geared vehicle. So I think uh, about the end of May, um, they got a zero dividend preference share and that effectively gave them gearing about 35%. So if you look at the increase on a total assets basis, they were up 52%. So that's probably more comparable with how the investment manager did uh, against the index is still substantial outperformance. At the end of April, net assets stood at £47 million. So yet again, not a very large uh, investment trust. But they increased their dividend by 4%. That uh, dividends totaled 10p in the period. And they also paid a small special dividend as well. Uh, though the revenue per share was down 35%. So in other words, the dividend was uh, uncovered because the revenue per share came in at 6.12p. Yes, I think it's fair to say because of the gearing, this one's been up a lot and then down a lot and then up a lot again. Certainly done very well over the last period anyway, as you mentioned. Next, let's move on and talk about Schroeder UK Midcap. SCP is the ticker. And they've had interim results for the second half of this period. That's right. So interim results for the six months to the end of March, in which time their NAV total return was up just short of 24%. That compared with a rise of nearly 29% for the FTSE 250, excluding investment trusts. Uh, and the share price actually was very strong. Share price total return up 47% as the discount narrowed into about 5%. So again, it's interesting about this, this point about the changing market direction covered by this period. So the largest detractors 
for Shredder UK Midcap in that six-month period were what they, again, describe as the lockdown beneficiaries. And they've named a few Pets at Home, Games Workshop, Dunelm and Computer Centre. And these would have all been the top performers in the previous six months, one suspects. Uh, whereas they got positive contribution from companies such as Crest Nicholson, Vistry, Inchcape and Royal Mail. The revenue uh, return per share came in at uh, 5 spot 18 p and that was up on a comparable period uh, and they've announced an interim dividend of 3.8p. But it's worth noting that the board has actually reduced the annual dividend on this one to a more sustainable level. So they've got off that particular uh, burden they might be carrying if that's how they see it. This sits in the all companies sector, which is quite a small sector, rather surprising, the UK all companies sector. I guess the issue for them is how to differentiate yourself from open-ended equivalents. Where does Schroeder UK Midcap sit in that uh, sector and uh, how does its rating compare to the others? So we at Winterfront, we characterise it slightly differently. So we have a uh, UK Midcap subsector. So we're not in line with the AIC Stats Committee uh, on this one. And within that kind of UK Midcap uh, subsector, we have Mercantile, the JP Morgan Fund, and another JP Morgan vehicle, the JP Morgan Midcap Fund, because we believe those three are the, the most comparable to each other. So in terms of its rating, the JP Morgan Midcap Fund, that's probably trading around NAV, Shredder UK Midcap on about a 4% discount, and Mercantile is out probably on about about 8% discount or so at the moment, so that's slightly wider. Um, in performance terms, they've all performed pretty credibly, actually, over, over five years. Mercantile's been the strongest, up 90% NAV total return, followed by the uh, its stablemate, the JP Morgan Midcap Fund, up 84%, and not too far behind it, the Shredder UK Midcap Fund, up 78%. OK, so we won't get into the very important issue of whether or not the AIC should change its uh, classifications. Uh, it's illustrious statistics committee, of which you're a member, I'm sure, constantly debates that issue. It would be quite helpful, though, perhaps. I might just comment as an outsider. Uh, move on and talk about some overseas trusts now. Let's kick off with uh, Aberdeen Emerging Markets. Emerging Markets, a lot of people have been saying, have been a good place to look uh, more recently. How have they done over the relevant period? So Aberdeen Emerging Markets, they had interim results out for the six months again to the end of April, in which time their NAV total return was up 21.5%, and that represented an outperformance of the benchmark, the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, which is up 15.2%. In share price terms, um, also pretty positive, up 20%. So that was all good. The outperformance basically came from positive fund selection, and it's probably worth noting at this stage that this is effectively a fund of funds. So the, the management team, Andrew Lister, Bernard Moody, very experienced investors, and they will look to take positions in both closed-ended funds, so effectively investment trusts, and also open-ended funds as well. In this period, they obviously got the right funds, and particularly those focused on China and South Korea proved positive. Um, and also asset allocation also worked well for them in this time, uh, which is obviously an important part of the emerging market story. They were underweight China, overweight South Korea and Russia. Though I think um, interesting, the investment manager's report was, uh, again, worth reading, really good insight into what's going on across emerging markets. And they've reduced the gearing down. So it was about 0.3% as at the end of April. And I think they were just uh, a little bit wary of some valuations running ahead of itself. Um, but the other thing to note on this one is that 16% of the shares were in public hands as at the end of April. Now, that's an issue uh, because you're meant to have at least 25% of your shares in public hands. So uh, the FCA have given them what's called a, a modification on this. This is not a, a new development. This has been uh, the case for the last year or two. But they've got till 21st of August to kind of address this. 
And in the chairman's report, they noted that the board is actively considering changes that would address both the free float issue and the discount on which the fund uh, finds itself on. So how is it that that is, situation has arisen? I mean, what's the shareholder register look like to produce that result? Yeah, so it's basically got a very concentrated shareholder register. There's quite a few institutional uh, investors on there. And uh, as I say, you have to have. This is not normally a problem for investment trusts. It's worth noting sometimes at launch when your register is or it can be a little bit lumpy, quite concentrated. It's something to watch. So we have seen that with, with new investment trust companies coming to the marketplace, but it, it's pretty rare for an existing investment trust company. But it's a function of the fact that it's, it has a highly concentrated register. Uh, with a few kind of key shareholders on there. So it's a result of that. And so that must impact on the liquidity of the market uh, for shares in this trust, I imagine. And how is that reflected in, is that a direct cause of the discount uh, and the rating of this trust? I mean, it probably doesn't help, I think is probably the answer to that. So we've got it on a discount of about 13% at the moment. That's broadly in line, but it has been over the previous 12 months, which is 14%. Um, but that 13% today you can compare that across the whole peer group. So the Emerging Markets Global Peer Group, um, on average, that's probably about 8%. So it's on a wider discount than its peer group. So I'm sure it's a, a source of frustration. And uh, it'd be very interesting to see what the board come up with on this. Indeed, it will. So let's move on and talk about uh, Utilico Emerging Markets. UEM is the ticker. They've had an annual report out uh, for the year to the 31st of March, and not quite the same period. How did they do over that time frame? Yeah, they performed well. So it was an NAV total return of uh, just over 30% in that time. And that compared with a rise of 17.2% for the benchmark, which is the MSCI Emerging Markets Utilities Index. And again, it's worth just noting, and there's a clue in the name here, Utilico Emerging Markets. This is a specialist emerging market vehicle, very much focused on kind of infrastructure and utility type names. Uh, in share price terms, share price total return, they were up 27.3% as their discount kind of widened out in that period. But the income, the dividends are probably an important part of the story. And actually, they managed to increase their revenue per share by 3% in that time. And their full year dividend reflected that. That was up 2.6%. And that was fully covered. And again, there are not that many investment trusts that managed to increase their revenue and paid a fully covered dividend uh, over the last year. So that was certainly positive. Well, that certainly would be the case. You're absolutely right. Okay, a couple more to look at. Uh, Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income, JEFI. Obviously, this is a kind of slightly more risky uh, type of emerging market investment vehicle. Uh, what's the story there? They announced interim results for the six months to the end of March. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of just short of 24%. And that compared with a rise of 7.7% for the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, so significant outperformance. In share price terms, uh, even better, actually, just short of 27% as their discount narrowed from 9% to 7%. So what worked for them? Well, being underweight China and overweight Mexico and having a zero weighting to Alibaba. These were all uh, positive things, as was their small cap allocation. They have got, uh, again, as their name would suggest, an allocation to frontier markets. That was about 15% or so, and that detracted. But again, the dividend, the income element is a key part of this story. And their revenue return per share came in at 1.27p. That was down from 1.78p in the comparable period last year. And they've declared dividends of 2p in respect of the period. And that compares with 2.4p year on year. So that has come down. 
I think probably one of the key things to note here is that they do have this annual redemption facility. Now, what that's meant over time is that the fund has tended to trade around NAV because obviously shareholders can elect to uh, receive their cash back every once a year. What we've seen so far is that that annual redemption facility has not been taken up by too many shareholders. This year, it's a different story. So actually, 30% of the share register has elected for annual redemption. So as the board noticed, this is a disappointing outcome and it leaves the fund smaller than is desirable. Um, And they talk about how they're looking at uh, attempts to grow the fund. So just to put some numbers around that today, uh, they're sitting with assets of about 107 million pounds or so, according to the data in front of me. So that will shrink, obviously, by 30%. So it means they'll be nearer to 70, 75. So I guess the idea of the redemption facility is to um, provide some guarantee to shareholders and therefore encourage demand. But uh, it can also have the reverse effect and uh, take money away when you've been through certain difficult periods, I guess. So that is problematic. I mean, not many emerging market investment trusts do trade on a premium. It's quite rare, isn't it? So if there is, uh, you know, talk about emerging markets looking perhaps more attractive at the moment on valuation grounds, if nothing else, but it hasn't uh, translated into uh, uh, such strong demand that there's a lot of share issues likely to happen there. No, I think you're right. I'm just looking down the list of those funds in the emerging markets subsectors at the moment, and I'm struggling to see anything on a premium rating, for instance, at the moment. Um, the kind of global funds averaging 8%, as I mentioned earlier, even those with a, an income mandate, which have been popular over the years. So the JP Morgan Global Emerging Markets Income Fund, that's on about a 7% discount. The Jupiter Fund, that's a 6% discount. And then you go down into the more specialist names. So I think emerging markets feels it's certainly an out of favour asset class at the moment. I think it has been for quite a few years, to be honest. And although people got quite excited at the start of this year, uh, and we did see those discounts move in, to be fair, it seems to have petered out a little bit. Yes, indeed it does. Okay, so on overseas, let's round that off by talking about another very specialist trust. This is JP Morgan Japan's Small Cap Growth and Income. JSGI is the ticker. Uh, and they've had some final results. They've had final results out for the year to the end of March, in which time a strong set of results, actually. The NAV total return was up 42.4%, and that compared with a rise of 21.7% for the benchmark. In share price terms, it was even stronger, up 47.9%, just short of 48 as the discount narrowed from about 12% into about 9%. So outperformance was a result of positive stock selection, and it mostly came in the first six months of that period. Portfolio turnover was about 28% or so. But it's worth noting, actually, that this is one of the enhanced dividend payers. So just to remind people, this is where investment trusts have taken a policy of effectively paying out dividends out of a mixture of income and capital. So there's an element of capital that gets repaid. So the way that this particular fund does it is it looks to pay 1% of its NAV every quarter back to shareholders in the form of a dividend. So in that particular year, the dividend came in at 21.9p. That was up from 17.7p in the previous financial year. So let's uh, move on now again, and let's talk about a specialist alternative asset trust. This is SDCL Energy Efficiency Income. A lot of consonants to get my tongue around there. Uh, That's SEIT is the ticker. That's rather easier to uh, relate. Obviously, this is in a very popular sector, renewable energy, or rather this new category of uh, energy efficiency trusts. I think there are a couple of them out there. Uh, They've had some annual results, and uh, how have they done? 
they have had their annual results out to the end of March, in which time their NAV has increased from 101p to 102.5p. But in NAV total return terms, in other words, uh, including the dividend they pay back to shareholders, they're up 8%. And that's actually kind of what they're aiming to do. Their target net return or IRR is between 7 and 8%. So that's exactly where they've come in. Um, in terms of the dividend that they pay back to shareholders, that was covered by a cash of one2 times. In fact, declared dividends uh, were increased from 5p to 5.5p. And in fact, their target for the next financial year, so 2022, has increased by 2.2% to 5.62p with progressive growth targeted thereafter. So they sound pretty bullish on the dividend front. So overall, the pandemic has not really had a, a material impact on this particular fund's financial performance, although there were a few specific issues. Um, in terms of the discount rate that they use to value the underlying portfolio, that was reduced down from 7.5% to 7%. I think we talked about how that works earlier. And they've also had to make uh, a provision on one particular uh, investment. But uh, effectively, it seems to be moving in the right direction. And to your point, it's a really interesting asset class. If, if people are interested, I would suggest they do look at the um, the website for this particular fund. Um, I think they've, they've spent quite a lot of time and energy just really laying out what they're trying to do how they achieve energy efficiency, which sounds great, but actually there's quite a lot of practical aspects to it. And the website is is very informative on how they do that. Yes, and uh, we know that uh, some of the renewable energy trusts, uh, the generation ones, the ones that generate electricity from alternative sources or environmentally friendly sources, solar, wind power, and so on. I mean, we've seen some contraction in their premiums over the uh, recent period, but um, these energy efficiency trusts, they're still uh, much in demand, I think. No, that's right. I mean, we've got SDCL energy efficiency income on a 15% premium at the moment. Very good. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I've been practicing. And also triple point energy efficiency infrastructure. Uh, that's on about a 13% premium. There's a new one to the market as well, Aquila Energy Efficiency Trust. I think we talked about that. That's trading on a slight discount at the moment, according to the numbers in front of me, on about a 3% discount. Uh, but it's still very, very early days for that investment company, literally only launched a few weeks ago. But you're right. I mean, if you look across the renewable energy piece, you know, they're all trading pretty much on premiums. I think one exception at the moment, but the the weighted average premium rating on a renewable energy infrastructure fund at the moment is about 8%. And that's lower than we've seen it. So the 12 month average rating is, is about 13% or so. So there has been a premium contraction uh, over that time. Uh, just finally on this uh, one, which I'll have one more go at saying SDCL Energy Efficiency Income, SEIT, they declared a dividend of 5.5p, but you won't get that if you buy it in the market. So what is the yield on that one uh, in terms of where the share price is at the moment? Yeah, I know that's a good point. 4.7% is the number that's in front of me at the moment, which probably sounds about right. I've got a share price of 116.5p, so mental maths feels a about in the right ballpark. We'll certainly go with that. Okay, so we're going to move on and finish up by talking about a couple of property trusts. Uh, we always tend to have property bring out the rear, but we tend to only talk about the ones that are quite large or significant. So one of them we're going to talk about is perhaps not that large. Let's talk about AEW UK REIT, AEWU. This is one that I actually happen to own myself, I'm uh, happy to say, and they've had some annual results. What's the story there? Well, I think they've done quite well for you, actually. It's annual results out to the end of March, in which time the NAV per share was up 
0.5%, but in NAV total return terms, again, including the dividends that it's paid back to shareholders, it's up 15%. And in uh, shareholder total returns, so just looking at the share price and the dividends returned, it's up 33, nearly 34% as the discount has tightened in from 27% to 16% during that time. You're right, it's not one of the largest property vehicles, but the property portfolio was valued at £179 million at the end of March, and that represents 34 different properties. Um, The property total return over the financial year, they were up about 15%. So again, you know, just to put some numbers around this, that would be um, quite a decent return compared with a lot of the numbers that were seen from the UK commercial property funds at the moment. In terms of the rent collection, they've uh, reached at least 94% uh, for all quarters since the onset of of the pandemic. And obviously, rent collection has been a huge issue for some of these commercial property funds for very obvious reasons. And the majority of rents outstanding at the end of March were attributable to tenants who were financially able but unwilling to pay, which is quite interesting. In fact, there has been a legal action quite recently by AEWK REIT against two tenants uh, to recover unpaid rent, and that legal action um, has been successful. In terms of their earnings per share, they were down. They were down about 29% in the year to 6.19p, but that hasn't prevented them paying out uh, dividends totaling 8p per share. And that's in line with the target. So the dividend was effectively 77% covered in the year. Yes, that's very helpful. Thank you, Simon. I hope there's nobody else out there like me. But I have to admit, I can't quite remember (laughs) where I was and why I bought these shares at the time they did. I think it was because of the discount and uh, possibly based on a broker recommendation. I can't actually recall at the moment. Could have been one of yours, Simon, for all I know. But anyway, let's move on quickly because that's uh, rather embarrassing for me to have to admit it. But anyway, it's done quite well. So maybe I was just uh, very smart or maybe I was just lucky. Who knows? Let's finish off then. We talked about LXI before, but let's talk about another trust called Value and Indexed Property Income, VIP. Uh, This is of interest. Again, it's not the largest investment trust out there, but it's of interest because uh, it's actually uh, changing its mandate and uh, uh, moving into a more pure property vehicle. Can you tell us more about that and their results, Simon? I certainly can. I mean, you're absolutely right. This used to be called until relatively recently Value and Income Investment Trust. Uh, It was a hybrid uh, investment trust before, so it had a UK equities portfolio, and then it had this property portfolio. And the decision has been made to kind of effectively to go down the property route. But what we've learned this week, they released their annual results to the end of March, uh, and that policy changed actually was approved back in January this year. But for this annual period, their NAV total return was up 12.3%. Their share price was up 39.3%. And they've actually been buying back some shares as well. So in terms of the different elements, the the equity portfolio was up 26.6%. And that's the bit that effectively has been transitioned. That's been sold down. So that becomes less relevant. And at the end of March, they had 11 investments still in that equity portfolio as they kind of moved out of it. Um, But the property portfolio is where the future of this investment trust lies. Um, That was up 2.3% on a total return basis. The bits that worked well were the industrials, the supermarkets and uh, a caravan park apparently performed very well in the period. But unsurprisingly, pubs and leisure properties uh, saw their valuations fall. So at the end of March, the property portfolio was valued at £80.6 million and consisted of 31 assets let let on long-term leases with upward-only rent reviews. And the earnings per share in the period were 5.35p, and that was down from 10.2p in the previous financial year, so quite a fall. uh, And they paid out total dividends of 12.3p, so again, uncovered. 
But essentially, in the medium term at least, the board is looking to ensure that the dividend is paid uh, from rents and dividends received. Um, so this idea that they'll get back to a covered dividend at some stage. So essentially, I mean, the property portfolio is in the kind of areas that you'd probably want to be in at the moment, or that's the, you know, they're managed to be in uh, long leases with uh, inflation protection. That seems like possibly a good place to be if you think that we are running into an inflationary period, but they've still got to make the transition, complete the transition. They probably noticed what LXI have done and how well they've done. So would they be direct comparators once they've eliminated the equity portfolio, would you say? Um, they'd certainly be far more comparable than obviously they once were. But you're right, the approach on the property side has always been quite opportunistic and quite prepared to um, invest in areas that probably other you know, serious commercial property managers probably wouldn't look at. So caravan parks, I I'm looking here at the property portfolio, I think this is at the end of April or May, certainly relatively recently, but the holiday park in Dover represented 12% of the property portfolio. And that's obviously done really well for them in this time. So I think they're, they're what we'd call quite canny investors on the property side and quite opportunistic. But for the moment, they still trade. The discount is coming a little bit, as you said, but they're still what on a, what kind of discount do you have them on? You're right. They were on a very wide discount. It's probably worth noting. And they have been um, re-rated. But again, it's still quite wide. So I've got them on about a 9% discount or so at the moment. So I guess from the board's point of view, they're moving in the right direction at least. Very good. Well, I think that's all we've got time for this week. I'd like to mention that uh, if you are a subscriber to the Moneymakers Circle, we're doing a very interesting Q&A with a, an analyst from another firm. Uh, this is Colette Ord, the very experienced head of real asset research at uh, Numis Securities. Done a very interesting uh, conversation about the infrastructure space that we've spent a bit of time talking about. And I commend that to you, um, possibly not to you, Simon, but I commend it to the, everybody else. <laughs> and uh, we're also going to do another Q&A quite shortly with uh, Hamish Bailey, who's the manager of the Ruffer Investment Company, another very interesting uh, multi-asset trust. So that'll be coming up soon for those who uh, are interested in, in listening to that. But for the meantime, we'll hope for some more action next week. Uh, if it is quiet, we, we always seem to find things to talk about, notwithstanding. So, uh, Simon, thank you for your time, and we'll look forward to um, speaking again next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.